his word. And this morning, uh, we'll, obviously we finished off going through First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. So this morning we're launching into our studies in the Gospel according to Luke. So if you uh, open your Bibles and find the Gospel according to Luke, we'll just be looking at a few verses there this morning. Now, I wonder if you've ever wondered why we actually have four accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus in the Bible. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And sometimes it's worth pondering whether or not it actually might be better to just have one integrated account with all the details in it so that we wouldn't have to have, you know, four different accounts. And we wouldn't be the first people to ask that question if we do ask that question sometimes. Because in the second century, there was a chap called Tashin. And Tashin was bothered by the fact that there were four separate gospel accounts. And so he, he collated them all together into one uh, glorious harmony of the gospels, which he called the Diatessaron, and he circulated it amongst uh, a group of churches in Syria. And that actually gained a lot of traction for a few centuries. Until um, in the fifth century, there was a guy called Theodoret, who was a Syriac bishop, and he decided that this was not appropriate and so he, he gathered together about 200 copies of this diatessera and he locked them all away and it wasn't because he was trying to get rid of the gospel or the, the story of the life of Jesus he replaced those with the four separate gospel accounts because he was insistent that this collation wasn't actually what God wanted God wanted these four separate books and so uh, we would we would not be um, the first people to wonder why actually we've got four separate accounts but it, of course it's not just the life of the Lord Jesus that leads to these four separate accounts of his life. When you look at any kind of historical figure that's been of great interest to people, they often breed a lot of biographies and consideration about what their life meant. Winston Churchill, for example, one recent biographer, Andrew Roberts, uh, guessed that there was something like a thousand and nine uh, biographies of Winston Churchill. And that's an awful lot for somebody that only lived about, what, 80 years ago, who was Prime Minister about 80 years ago. Uh, one newspaper then asked the question, do we need another biography? And they said, well, probably not, but he's always such fun to read about and his life is so inspiring, so why not have another one? And if we can say that about somebody like Winston Churchill, and I think we can say something similar about the Lord Jesus, for a life which is so significant, so inspiring, so meaningful and important, then it makes sense that actually numerous people have written down their thoughts, their interpretation, their understanding of the life of the Lord Jesus. But more significantly, even though we do have these four recorded accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus, these aren't duplicates. These each have their distinct emphases. John, he's the fourth gospel writer, and he writes later than the other gospel writers, and his is a much more mature reflection of an older man looking back in the life of the Lord Jesus and reflecting about what that life meant. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels because a lot of what they write is actually very similar. They were probably drawing on, on the same documents at certain points, similar witnesses at the same points, and drawing on each other at certain points as well. But it's precisely in their similarities that we notice that sometimes when they veer off from one another that they've got very distinct emphases. And so as we look at the different gospel accounts and look at how they differ from one another, we see that they each have their own slant, their own their different interpretations of the life of the Lord Jesus. And of course, these differences, these different slants are complementary. They're not contradictory to one another. 
Yet, nevertheless, we discover that they do have distinct emphasis that they want to bring to us. And so the gospel that we're going to be looking at over the next few months is the gospel according to Luke. Now, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Luke himself wrote the majority of the New Testament. Luke and Acts comprise the, the biggest chunk of the New Testament, uh, more even than even Paul wrote. And so we're going to be looking at, over the next few months at the Gospel according to Luke. Now, I've, as I've divided it up, I've tried to divide it up into fairly big chunks because I want us to see the big messages that Luke is trying to convey to us. And so different speakers will, over the next uh, months, tell us about what God is saying through Luke as he accounts the life of the Lord Jesus. But this morning, I've only focused on the first four verses because in these first four verses of Luke, he sets out for us what he's trying to do, why he's writing the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's going to bring to us certain emphases that he's going to highlight for us over the coming months. And so without further ado then, we're going to jump into Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and read the first four verses that describe for us why Luke wrote this account of the life of the Lord Jesus. And he says, Many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And this is God's word to us this morning. Now, as we look at that first verse, I want to make a comment about the translation, and I don't normally do this, but this is a significant point. A few translations will say at the end of verse one, the things that are most surely believed among us, rather than the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, both translations are equally possible. Uh, the text literally says something along the lines of the things that have been made full among us. And then the question for the translators is, what has been made full? Is it the belief of the saints has been made full? Or is it the events that have been brought to complete fulfilment? They've been made full in that sense. Given that Luke is talking in verse 1 about the events that have been made full, then it makes sense to translate it as the events that have been fulfilled among us. Um, and more so because this is a theme that Luke is actually going to return to again and again, and actually one that he sandwiches his gospel with uh, and concludes with at the end of Luke's gospel as well. And so I don't normally make comments about translation, but I do at this point simply because it, it frames Luke's gospel. And so it's worth noting that one. And so when we come to the end of Luke's gospel, we actually see him returning to quite similar words. And so if you look at Luke 24 for me, it's the end of Luke's gospel. And... And what you see uh, is that Luke sandwiches his gospel with similar words and similar emphases so that with these bookends in place, we actually see some of the things that he wants to draw our attention to. And so if you look at Luke 24 and verse 44, we read these words. The Lord Jesus, he says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So he, he highlights that theme of fulfillment 
But he also highlights in verse 48, not only the theme, theme of fulfillment, but also the theme of witnesses. Remember in chapter 1, verse 2, he says that he's had this material handed down from handed down to him from those who were eyewitnesses. And in 2448, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. And so he's highlighting this theme of witnesses as well as the theme of fulfillment. Now, the reason why I point this out is because this is a common literary technique in the Bible. If you want to draw attention to something, you put it in a sandwich. Uh, you know, in a sandwich, you get two slices of bread and you've got the stuff in the middle. Well, in, in the Bible, a literary technique is common, common to, to put these, these themes at the beginning and at the end so that you read everything in between in light of these different themes. And we're going to come back to those themes very briefly. But first of all, I want to think about Luke's main point here in chapter 1 and in these first four verses. In the Greek text, these first four verses are all one long sentence and they all culminate in verse four, where Luke says that the purpose of them writing is to communicate to this chap Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but he was probably a prominent Roman official. That's why he's given this title, most excellent Theophilus. Given that, he was probably a Gentile Christian, and so he wasn't a Jew, probably a Gentile, and had probably come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted to have a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus, wanted to be sure about the things that he had been told from other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was probably, in my opinion, what was known at the time as a God-fearer, that is, he believed in the God of Israel and probably went along to the local synagogue, but he probably wasn't circumcised and hadn't officially converted to Judaism. So he was on the fringes of Judaism, as it, as it were, because he was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew. Yet he had heard about the Lord Jesus and had come to trust in the Lord Jesus as his saviour and, and the Messiah. And yet he's got all of these questions in his mind. He's probably quite a new believer and he's wondering, how can I be sure that all of this that I've been told is true? How can I be sure that Jesus really is the Messiah who's the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes? And more than that, how can I be sure that I who am a Gentile can now be included in the people of God even though I'm not a Jew? And so he look and Luke comes along and he writes this account for Theophilus and he says that this I'm writing to you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. But what is it that's going to give Theophilus certainty? as Luke writes to him. Well, we notice three things. First of all, Luke is trying to give certainty to Theophilus because he's drawing on eyewitness testimony. So you can see that he draws on that both at the beginning and at the end of Luke's gospel. Everything that Luke's writing, he's writing from the perspective of the witnesses of what's taking place. Secondly, he wants to give assurance to Theophilus because um, he's writing to him an orderly account. And we'll come back to what that means, but this orderly account is structured to give assurance to Theophilus of the things that he has been taught. And thirdly and finally, we're going to see that Luke wants to give assurance to Theophilus by writing to him a very personal uh, story of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, designed for Theophilus' own particular needs and concerns. And what I want to do then is just work through each of those 
uh, priorities at Luke and think about how they are relevant to Theophilus and relevant to us as well in the 21st century. And the first thing that Luke then pays attention to as he wants to give assurance to Theophilus is uh, the eyewitness testimony that he's actually drawing on. And so he says in these verses that, that many had undertaken to draw up an account of the things that had been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word or the message. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. This particular attention to eyewitness testimony pervades the gospel accounts, not just the gospel accounts, it pervades the entire New Testament because the writers are at pains to demonstrate to us that they're not coming up with this material. They're actually taking it from those who had seen what had actually taken place. And so in Luke 24, we see the Lord Jesus gathering the disciples together, those who had been with him from the beginning, and he says to him, you are my witnesses. Again, when we turn to the second part of Luke's account of what God was doing uh, through the Lord Jesus in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 1, again, we see the Lord Jesus. He takes the disciples and he says, you are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. This then drives the concern of the apostles later on in the book of Acts as they think about the fact that Judas, who was one of the original witnesses, then betrayed the Lord Jesus and they then look for someone else. They say, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So they're constantly looking for people who are going to be official witnesses of all that had taken place. And later on, when we look at other New Testament letters, we look at letters like 1 John, uh, where the Apostle John, he writes to other believers and he opens his account by saying what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have perceived and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so he's saying, look, this is stuff that we've heard with our own ears, that we've touched with our hands, that we've seen with our own eyes. This is what really took place. And it's not just John, because when we turn to Peter's letters, we look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, and Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he proceeds to talk about how they were with the Lord Jesus when the heavens were opened and God declared, This is my son. And so he wants to point out that this is this kind of thing that they have been personal eyewitnesses too. And so we see again and again in the New Testament that whether from the perspective of eyewitnesses or whether from material which has been drawn from eyewitnesses, what we see in the New Testament is stuff which is actually historical events that have happened and people are recording for us. When we turn to Luke's gospel then, we see that Luke, he's not claiming to be an eyewitness himself. He's not trying to make stuff up and say, oh, I saw this. He acknowledges quite candidly that a lot of this stuff he didn't see. But he is clear that he sought out those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the message so that he would carefully investigate everything and put down everything that they had seen. And so this tells us then something about Luke's method in writing this gospel for us. Since he is drawing an eyewitness testimony, he would doubtless have drawn on other gospel accounts. Mark, for example, Matthew, for example, and would have drawn on those as sources when he's writing his gospel. There would have been other documents circulating about the life of the Lord Jesus they would have drawn on. And we are also inclined to believe that he would have interviewed people 
to get their personal testimony of what actually took place. And when you look through Luke's gospel, you actually see clues again and again that he's been talking to the people that he's writing about. For example, Luke chapter 1, we only have to go as far as verse 14 for Look at verse 11 of chapter 1, for example. Read the account of Zechariah. He's in the temple, and we see an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, that right side of the altar of incense, that's oddly specific. He doesn't just say he saw an angel in the temple, he's very specific. It was the right hand side of the altar of incense. Where does he get this information from? My guess is that he's actually been talking to either Zachariah or to his wife Elizabeth and they've communicated this information directly to him because it's so specific. Again, chapter 1, verse 41, we see um, Mary and Elizabeth, they're meeting each other and when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So how does Luke know that the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb? Well, probably because um, Elizabeth has told this uh, to Luke. And it could have been that he's been consulting Mary as well and other sources. And we see again and again that Luke is drawing on eyewitness testimony in order to record his account. And these unusually specific details are clues for us that actually what's recorded here is not just generic making up what's taken place was actually has actually taken place. Now if you're interested in finding out more about this, I don't have time to go into it in any more detail, but there's a book that's been written in the past few years called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by a professor of New Testament at St Andrews University, Richard Balcom, and he wrote this book and he goes through in extensive detail and he shows that by looking at these accounts themselves and by cross-referencing them with other materials in the first century world, these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, bear remarkable evidence of being the source of eyewitness testimony. It's not stuff that's just been made up. It's stuff that has all the hallmarks of being reliable historical sources. But why is this important for us? It's important because even in the present day, in the day-to-day -day world, we recognise the importance of eyewitness testimony. If you're in a court case, and if you've only got one witness, well, that's not terribly reliable and it causes all kinds of problems when you've got one person speaking against another person and knowing what to do about that. But if you've got multiple people that you can pull in and, and say, you know, I saw this person doing this or this person did not do this, then it provides a very convincing course either to charge someone or to acquit someone. And so we recognise the value of eyewitness testimony and this is no different when it comes to trusting the records of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll talk to people and they are very sceptical of any kind of religious claims. They'll say, I, I don't want to believe in any kind of religious claims because that would require me to check out my reason, leave my brain at the door and just embrace anything that's told to me. While that might be true for some religions, that is emphatically not the case for the gospel, for the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it requires us to believe things that actually took place. In Buddhism, for example, it really doesn't matter whether the Buddha lived or not. His historical teachings would survive and would stand on their own whether or not he actually existed. But when it comes to Christianity, 
whether or not Jesus existed, whether or not he lived, demonstrated his power, whether or not he died on the cross and rose from the dead and commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the good news, everything hinges upon whether or not that actually happened. And so it's not a case of, you know, believing claims and checking out your brain at the door. It's a matter of examining what the eyewitnesses have actually said and coming to the conclusion what they have said is completely reliable and we can stake our lives on what they have said. And so what Luke is doing is he's writing this document for Theophilus and saying, look, Theophilus, you might be sceptical, you might have questions in your mind, but you can be absolutely sure that I've carefully investigated everything from the eyewitness sources and I can tell you in no uncertain terms that everything I'm saying here to you about the Lord Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. You can believe what I'm telling you about who Jesus is and what he did and that you can follow him and stake your life upon his claims. And that's not just something that Theophilus needed to hear in the first century. We need to hear it in the 21st century as well too. We ask ourselves, can we trust the Gospels? Did Jesus do everything and say everything that we read about him? Did he really live among us? Did he really demonstrate his power and die on the cross and rise from the dead? And commission the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Luke says to us, right here, right now, absolutely, you can trust this. This is a reliable record I'm writing for you. And it's as trustworthy today in the 21st century as it was in the first century. And it's not just eyewitness testimony then that Luke provides for Theophilus. But we see that he writes... In order, he writes an orderly account, and he says, I myself have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. It's important to, to realize that Luke is not necessarily saying that this is in chronological order. He doesn't say that, he says it's in order, which means he's ordered his account, at times chronologically, but the most important ordering is a persuasive ordering, an ordering that will answer the concerns and needs of Theophilus as he reads this gospel. Theophilus is reading it with particular concerns in mind and Luke is then going to order his account around particular themes that he's going to keep coming back to, keep on emphasising so that Theophilus can gain assurance. And this is why he's writing. He wants Theophilus to be sure about the things that he has been instructed of. And so then you need to bear in mind the situation of Theophilus as he's reading this document. Like I said, he's probably a Roman official because he's given this title most excellent Theophilus. He's probably a Gentile. He's probably embraced the Messiah as his own. And yet he's got these questions and he's wondering, is Jesus really the promised Messiah? That God had promised Israel. Can I really trust him? He's wondering, can I, a Gentile, be included as part of the people of God and in what Jesus the Messiah is doing. He's wondering, can I, a Gentile, a Roman official, living in a very hostile environment, can I too follow Jesus Christ? And then these questions form very specific emphases throughout the Gospel of Luke, things that he keeps coming back to again and again. Take that theme of fulfilment, for example, and we've already seen that Luke sandwiches his gospel by talking about the things that have been fulfilled, and Luke finishes uh, in chapter 24 by talking about how, Lord how the Lord Jesus had fulfilled everything that was written in the scriptures. And this is the kind of thing that he comes back to again and again. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the angel announces to Mary that Jesus will inherit the throne of his father, David. 
So Jesus is the fulfilment of the promises made to David. Chapter 1, verse 54, we see Mary, and she's rejoicing that, that God has remembered his promises to Abraham and to his descendants. And so the covenantal promises made to Abraham are finding the fulfilment of Jesus. And not only do we find Luke talking again and again about how the Lord Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, but we find Jesus himself talking about how he must fulfill all that was written about him. And so again and again, you'll find the Lord Jesus using the word must. He must do certain things. Why must he do them? Well, because these are the things that have been written about him. And so in chapter 18, verse 31, he explains, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And so as you read through Luke's gospel, keep looking for where he's saying certain things are fulfilled. Keep looking for that word must, where Jesus is saying that he must do certain things. Because what Luke is highlighting for us is that Jesus really is the one who brings to fulfillment all of God's promises. All of God's ancient promises made to his people, how God would put everything right through the Messiah, how God would send a person to deal with his people's sins, are coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Theophilus then can trust in this account. It shows that Jesus really is the one that he can trust in. Another question that Theophilus would have had was whether he, a Gentile, can actually be part of the people of God. Because historically he'd been excluded from the people of God unless he decided to be circumcised and to undergo a formal induction into the Jewish people. But even then he would, wouldn't quite fit as a proselyte. And so Luke wants to reassure him again and again that, that he, a Gentile, is part of the people of God through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And so in chapter 2, verse 32, we see Simeon in the temple and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, takes him as a little baby, and he says that Jesus is to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well as the glory of his people Israel. And so from the very outset, we see that the Gentiles are going to be included in the people of God. Again, in chapter 5, verse 32, we see Jesus emphasizing that it's not just righteous people, good, faithful Israelites that he's come to call, but he has come to call sinners to repentance, sinners like Theophilus, who can thus become part of God's people. And that really gets highlighted when we come to chapter 7. We see a Roman centurion, and he comes to Jesus, and he asks that Jesus would heal his servants. And Jesus, he does this, and after doing it, he says something very interesting. He says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He's saying, therefore, that this Roman official is someone who exceeds the faith of most Israelites. And so Luke's saying to Theophilus, there's a place at the table for you too. You might be a Gentile, you might be a Roman official, but you too can be included as part of what the Lord Jesus is bringing about. And alongside that, Theophilus is probably wondering how he can be a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus in the midst of a very hostile environment. The Roman government was not friendly towards Christianity. And Theophilus, whatever position he occupied, would have wondered how he could follow the Lord Jesus. How does he follow Christ? Well, in, throughout Luke's gospel, we see a distinct emphasis on what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. Luke 12, for example, 
the Lord Jesus tells people that they're not to worry about what happens when they are persecuted by civil or religious authorities because the Holy Spirit would empower them to know what to say. And so that would be of particular significance to someone like Theophilus. And we're told uh, about the importance of, of not trusting in riches, for example. We're told to maintain a state of watchfulness as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will triumph and set up his kingdom against all the, the claims of the kingdoms of this world. And in many other places, Luke tells us what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus in the midst of a hostile world. And my point then, in drawing out these themes, flagging them for us before we come to them in the Gospel of Luke, is so that we would see that Luke isn't putting together a hodgepodge of different stories about Jesus. He's not just saying, oh, I've gathered together all the different stories that I could find. It's that he has carefully crafted a narrative, an orderly narrative of the life of the Lord Jesus, because he wants to reassure Theophilus against all of his concerns and doubts that he can really trust in what he's been told. That Jesus really is the Messiah who's fulfilled Israel's promises. That, that he can be part of the people of God. That he can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that we need to keep coming back to again and again as we read this gospel together. We need to be asking ourselves the question, well, if I was in Theophilus' shoes, how would I be hearing this? How would I find comfort and encouragement in this? And that's not just part of our responsibility as careful readers of, of this. But it's also our responsibility as God's people, um, because we too live in a, a hostile world. We too are, are, for the most part, as far as I know, ethnically Gentiles and don't, form, uh, don't have a claim to be part of the covenant people of God. And we too wonder, how do we follow Jesus in the midst of a very difficult world? And if we can then see how Luke answers these questions for Theophilus, then we start to see how Luke answers these questions for us and how the Holy Spirit speaks to us today through this. And so God the Holy Spirit wasn't just writing this account for Theophilus, but was writing this account for us so that it would answer our questions and provide certainty and assurance for us as we seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And another thing related to this, by which Luke seeks to provide reassurance for Theophilus, is the fact that Luke is writing here not only an eyewitness account, an orderly account, but a very personal account. And Luke says, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And this is a reminder to us that this is a book that's been written with a specific individual in mind. It's been tailored for a specific individual. This is true for this gospel, and it's true for every other book of the Bible. It's always written with specific individuals or people in mind, and we need to keep that at the front of our minds as we're reading the Bible. We also need to remember that there were many other books written, Luke alludes to them, that have not been preserved for us as part of the canon of Scripture, as part of authoritative Scripture, precisely because the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to preserve those books because some of them may not have had enduring significance for God's people. There may have been personal documents written that may have been of interest in the first century but are of no relevance to us now. And so what we have here in the Bible is what the Holy Spirit has preserved for us as books of enduring significance. 
what God wants us to hear right now, in this place, in this time, so that God speaks to us through the centuries and across different geographical locations. So as we read this, we hear it addressed to Theophilus, but we ought to hear it addressed to us too. We don't read Luke merely as an historical account of the life of Jesus. It's a personal word, written to Theophilus, written to us, speaking to us personally through the Holy Spirit. And that means as we come away from everything that we read here, we don't come away thinking, oh, that was just an interesting historical event. We've got to come away thinking, what is God the Holy Spirit saying to me today through what I have read in Luke's Gospel? Because that's what what God is doing through his word and through this gospel. And with that in mind, then, we look at our text this morning, these four verses as we close, and and wonder as we close, what what does God have to say to us through these four verses? I think the big message that I take away from these verses is that that God speaks to us in a caring and attentive way because he wants to strengthen our faith. You look at something like Theophilus, And he's got questions, he's got concerns. And Luke writes to him through the Holy Spirit to encourage him, to strengthen him. And God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit this morning, wanting to strengthen our faith. Wanting to provide certainty and assurance for us. So that as we read this book, that we are not tossed about in a sea of uncertainty, wondering, can we trust this Jesus that we read about? We can Luke took pains to ensure that this was reliable and the Holy Spirit wants to give us confidence. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to us today and provide us assurance that we too form part of the people of God. That we too might be like Theophilus, uh, not having an ethnic claim to belong to the people of God, but included nevertheless because of what the Lord Jesus has done. And he wants us to provide reassurance that we too can follow the Lord Jesus. Just like Theophilus, in the midst of a very hostile environment, serving the Roman government in whatever capacity, uh, we find ourselves in different work situations, different family situations, wondering, how do we serve the Lord Jesus here? And the Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us that he's going to show us through this gospel how we can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the coming months then, as we hear about the Lord Jesus, as we listen to the Lord Jesus, I pray that God would strengthen our faith and make this a word of abiding personal significance to us here today in the 21st century so that we leave, having read this book, with a strengthened faith, increasing conviction that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is worth giving our lives to. So may God help us to do this as we live our lives for his glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, And loving Father, we thank you that we come to your word as the word of a loving Father and a gracious God. We thank you that your word speaks to us with abiding significance. We thank you that your word dresses our fearful and doubting and trembling hearts and comes to us like the Lord Jesus long ago, saying to us, do not be afraid, and providing certainty for our faith. So that as we live our lives waiting for the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are emboldened to serve him and to live faithfully for him. 
knowing that your word is utterly reliable. And so we ask that you would work in our hearts to bring about increasing conviction of your word and its truth and increasing faithfulness to the Lord Jesus as we ask it in his name and for his honour.